Hey, y'all. What's up? We got a podcast. <laughs> well, you know that. <laughs> There's another podcast <laughs> that we think uh, you as a listener to Ergo might want to know about, and it's called Scene on Radio. It's a show that dives deep into history to tell stories that explore who we really are as a society and how we got this way. In their best-known season, Seeing White, <laughs> the show looks at racism by laying out the invention and evolution of whiteness. And in their latest, season four, Seen on Radio retells the story of democracy in the U.S., or lack thereof, showing how anti-democratic forces have always been with us and exploring how we can move toward real democracy. So definitely check that out. That's Seen on Radio. S-C-E-N-E on Radio. All right, folks, you know what time it is. It's time for an ad for Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls. Just a great podcast app for everyone. As always, you can get it for free on the App Store. Good evening. I'm loving the energy. Welcome, welcome, everyone. I am one of your co-hosts. I am Damon. I want to bring up my other co-hosts to the virtual stage. Peace, y'all. I'm Asha. Um, I'm the other co-host tonight. I use she, her pronouns. And I am Damon. I use he, him pronouns. I get down with the Let Us Breathe Collective, part of the new Black Abolitionist Network. Shout out to the Chicago Torture Justice Center, the R3 Coalition, the Rising Majority. So, so happy to be here to be a part of this defund CPD debrief, more abolitionist than ever. Burr, 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 burr. Hey, yeah. Um, and I know Maasha, I'm also with the defund CPD campaign um, with Damon, also organized with BYP 100 um, and a group called Dissenters. Um, and yeah, I'm really excited to be here um, and to be digging into these conversations with y'all. Uh, shout out to everyone who has hopped, hopped on on time. Um, and yeah, we're going to get into it. I'm going to make a couple of uh, just announcements before we get started. So we do have uh, ASL interpretation, as hopefully folks can see on the screen, um, as well as live captions. If you want to turn on uh, live captions, there should be um, a button on the bottom of the screen that says CC. And next to that, you can uh, press show sub titles. Um, hopefully we can get those instructions also dropped in the chat. Um, we also have Spanish interpretation tonight, um, and there should be a button right next to that one uh, that says interpretation where you can turn on, um, yeah, where you can turn on uh, this presentation in Spanish. If you are on the Facebook, we encourage you to come on over bit.ly slash defund lessons and come into the Zoom. Um, where where you'll have a little bit easier access to to the interpretation features tonight. Um, hey, Asha. Yes. I need to make this announcement in Spanish real quick. Okay, go for it. Okay, hola a todos. Eh, muy buenas tardes. Para la interpretación al español, pueden oprimir al inferior de su pantalla, a la izquierda, el globo terráqueo. Pueden elegir la opción de español o inglés, dependiendo en lo que usted necesite. Si está usando, si se está sintonizando desde su dispositivo, puede oprimir los tres puntos al fondo de su pantalla. 
eh, al inferior de su pantalla, perdón, a la, a la izquierda y la opción de lenguaje puede oprimir el español o el inglés como usted se sienta eh, cómodo o cómoda. Ok, muchas gracias. Great, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I'm going to kick it to Damon to kind of ground us before we get into the program. So I want to encourage everybody, wherever you are, um, to just feel your body um, and just take a deep breath in and then a deep breath out. Take a more intentional, deeper breath in a second time and a slower, more controlled breath out. And I encourage you to take a third breath on your own pace. And we thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Uh, um, this is the deep fund CPD debrief more abolitionist than ever. And I want to ground us before we get into the, the politics and the organizing um, of just how significant this year has been for us as a society, as a city, as a movement, as people, as communities. Uh, I know many of us are dealing with the trauma of a global pandemic, unlike any of us have seen. Uh, and then we also experienced, uh, you know, by my account, the most active political year in human history. Uh, and so all of these shifting conditions have come together this year and made the space for us to launch this campaign that was in conversation with so many campaigns in different cities and suburbs and towns and counties across the country and across the world, uh, demanding a new vision for how our society is organized, how our state interacts with its people, uh, a vision of a world that is not governed by violence and militarism, a vision of a world that names the harms of racial capitalism and patriarchy and how these things are destructive, not only to our earth <laughs> and our environment, uh, but to our communities and to our bodies and to our spirits. Um, and so as we have had this shorthand of defund the police, which is speaking towards abolition, which is speaking towards revolution and liberation. Uh, I am so encouraged and so proud to be alive and connected to all of these beautiful people, all of these young black people, the solidarity between black and indigenous folks that has reemerged this year has put us in a position to create a new world. Um, and so that was the spirit once the uprising began in May, and then we've been doing a lot of work since. And before we start to get into the debriefing and the pluses and the deltas and the analysis, uh, I just want us to all be so proud of ourselves for being a part of something that's going to create a better future and that is honoring our ancestors and addressing um, all of the oppressive systems that have brought us today, but we're not just stopping by naming the harms of the oppression we are stepping in and working collectively to create a new world with each other. So I'm so proud to be a part of this. I'm so proud of y'all for being here with us. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe. Thank you for that, that beautiful grounding, Damon. I knew when you came on with the turtleneck, you were gonna. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so thank you so much for that. Um, and really just this event is, um, about kind of celebrating, sharing some lessons um, and, and sharpening some of what we've learned over um, this last not even year of, of organizing um, since uprisings kind of kicked off in May and since the, the launching of the Defund CPD uh, campaign as really like a container to see like how can we build um, massive uh, mass participation and mass sustained organizing out of a moment of, of uprising and mobilization like we saw specifically on on May 31st in Chicago. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited that a part of this conversation gets to be being in conversation with defund police 
uh, and abolitionist organizers from, from other cities. Um, yeah, we got folks from Minneapolis gonna join this conversation. We got folks from Dallas, um, we got folks from, from New York and, and from Atlanta. Um, and so I'm so excited for that. Um, and yeah, with that, I am going to kick it to our opening performers, uh, Shane and Sharif uh, from Circles and Ciphers to, to uh, yeah, share with us their, their performance and their works. I'll knock the board off the table. I'm not here to play these games. You bring death, I bring life. We're not one in the same. I don't want your reformation because time ain't got no patience. If I think you're going to protect me, it's my blackness that I'm wasting. You let Benjamin enslave you into thinking that you are the concept of protect and serve our friends. Once again, all I got to do is stand up and it's over. Flying over rich racist bodies like a vulture. Stinging at the system with my venom like a cobra. Because I just want freedom. I want prisons to be turned into mental health centers. I want green paper to be secondary and community to be centered. I want to know what it's like to walk outside as I am and not feel like I have to fight. I want cages diminished, sentences to finish, privilege, the privilege to listen. Once you love on your discomfort, the growth is just beginning. All you got to do is stand up and it's over. Thank you. It's the greatest. Um, what it's like to be incarcerated at 26 in California, for those of you that aren't. Waking up to hear a CEO voice telling you to get out of bed, having to eat breakfast at 3 a.m., lunch at 10.30 a.m., dinner at 6 p.m., mandatory to wear DOC clothing just to show we are their property. It's getting told to spend $100 on commissary having to put a request slip in just to be seen by a doctor or a dentist, Waiting, wait for doctors or dentists to be seen a month or two later, having to talk to our loved ones on the phone while our phone's being recorded. It's having a little privilege being a worker to stay out and clean, clean, our, clean your deck. It's getting paid no more than $10 a week to clean up after men on tears, not able, not able to have access to a gym, rec, work without tools having to be isolated from music, not able to have contact visit with family, having to see family through glass with a bunch of other people like me talking at the same place, same pace. Being convicted of something, you know you're not guilty, yet innocent to proven psychologically is guilty to proven innocent, is receiving mail and being open when I get it, having a good sleep and waking up to flushes that sound like bang noise, having to put covers over my face or turning your head till he or she is finished. Can't, sh can't shit without worrying about catching a bump on your ass. It's having to be out for four or five hours, then locking right back up when second shift is finished. It's getting used to a routine you can't control. Worrying about a ticket, not telling if it's contra contraband or not. It's having to know how to break a law within a jail and dealing with the consequences. It's having your property and room get searched randomly having food confiscated. Thank you so much to Sharif and Shane. I uh, really want to shout out Circles and Ciphers as an important community-driven uh, youth-centered space that is working really hard to not only be present in community, but embody these abolitionist 
practices through restorative justice, through transformative principles. So shout out to Circles and Ciphers. We, we really love and appreciate you. Um, another accessibility practice that uh, we, we uh, failed to do at the jump is to describe our screen. So I am Damon. Uh, and I'll restate my name whenever I'm coming back in for folks uh, who may have uh, different visual access point needs. Uh, and I am in a more or less white screen and I'm wearing this turtleneck because I wear t-shirts every day during pandemic. So I want to be fancy for this here debrief. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to have a conversation where we're gonna invite some amazing folks uh, to talk about what's going on in relation to just here in Chicago, but uh, what's going on in this movement nationally. We have this decentralized structure, but we are, are connected through networks and through ideology, but also on a, on a deeper spiritual and communal level. Um, and so I'm really excited because, you know, from my knowledge, uh, about five years ago, the first action uh, that I'm aware of that uplifted the Divest Invest platform was a national action where folks from other cities came to Chicago to protest the International Association of Chief of Police. And five years later, to see all of these campaigns emerging in our city and across the country uh, has shown the power of movement and organizing um, and really the, the leadership of Black people and young Black people. So I want to invite three guests to, in conversation with us here in Chicago. Uh, very, very excited from Minneapolis, which we have so much love for our liberatory family, for how they stood up, um, not only for the legacy of George Floyd, but for all of our people. I wanna welcome Oluchi to the stage. And then from Dallas, we're gonna have Mercedes. Um, and from the Movement for Black Lives to talk about what's going on on a little bit of a more national perspective. Uh, we got Carissa with us. So I'm very, very excited uh, to be in this conversation. So first things first, uh, I'm gonna, hey, oh, hey, Chris, it's so good to see you. Uh, so, so first things first, I'm gonna let folks introduce themselves um, and talk about how you are connected to the defund fight and whatever your perspective or your position is. Um, and are, what are some of the things that your spaces are, are, are currently working for or forefronting um, in, in this current moment or in this current season? And I'm gonna throw it to you first, Aluchi. Ah, cool. Hey, y'all, I can start. My name is Aluchi. I use any pronouns, um, visual um, interpretation. I am black, wearing glasses. We'll probably take them off. I uh, have shoulder length locks, I'm wearing a dope ass yellow and black hockey jersey, and I'm sitting in front of a virtual background that is a purple field of flowers. Um, so from Minneapolis, uh, born and raised Minnesotan, shout out to all my Midwest gang in here, uh, shout out to Chicago. Um, so I am a core team member and co-founder of Black Visions, uh, which is a Black-led, queer and trans-centered organization in Minneapolis. Um, how we are connected to the defund fight after the atrocious murder of George Floyd, um, we came together as Black Visions and actually called for um, the defunding of police, um, uh, which subsequently came before the uprisings that were happening in Minneapolis. And through that, um, what we have been doing has been actually trying to um, get Minneapolis to reimagine what does uh, public safety and violence prevention look like? Um, and how can we actually take money from the Minneapolis Police Department and invest it in other um, community-based initiatives and alternate um, services and alternate means of safety. 
um, this year. Uh, we actually just uh, finished our budget campaign. In our budget campaign, we got uh, the city council to divest $7.7 million from the Minneapolis Police Department um, into alternate um, services, into 311, which is an alternate to 911, um, into community services um, and violence prevention. Um, and we all did that from the constant work that was happening in the last six months, uh, the grassroots organizing that we were doing with our partners and in coalition with other organizations, um, and have really learned that to make big changes, we needed to have the community with us and we needed to move with community. Um, so in this last year, in this last couple months, uh, we actually created a people's budget, which was a budget that was like, it's kind of like participatory budgeting, but it's not. Uh, we got together with multiple organizations all across Minneapolis. And we, we said, hey, what do you all want to see in, the, in, in this year's budget? Uh, we had over 70 organizations and 1,200 individuals sign it in a two-week period. Um, and we utilized that um, for the Minneapolis City Council to be able to make the cuts that they did. Um, so I will say that the only reasons why they actually did that uh, was because of the efforts that were happening in the last six months um, on the ground in Minneapolis. So I'll just stop there um, and I will turn it over to another one of my comrades on the call. Hey, um, this is Mercedes Fulbright. I'm wearing glasses just like a Lucci. I might take them off. Um, I'm wearing a black hoodie that says defund the police, movement for black lives in defense of black lives, destroy fascism. Um, I'm sitting in a room with orange, I think you can see the maroon um, and white on my walls in the background. Um, I'm a black queer Southern base building organizer. I'm a big sister, um, organizing director with the Texas Working Families Party, which is also my political home. I'm a founding member of the Dallas chapter of BYP 100 and have been a member of BYP for about five years now. Um, I DJ as an outlet, it's part of my healing. Um, so I'm in the new year, I'm trying to learn how to make beats. So that's gonna be like a part of my you know, offering and my intros. Um, and I'm connected to this fight. Um, I've been a part of the local defund fight in Dallas for about four and a half years um, in 2016. Our police chief, David Brown, sorry, Chicago, um, retired after the uh, killings of seven officers here in the city in 2016. And our city was looking for a new police chief. And um, alongside Mothers Against Police Brutality, we uh, launched a campaign to try to redirect folks away from this idea that we need a police chief to keep us safe, but actually to divest from Dallas Police Department in hopes that one, we can abolish the police department, but um, give folks another idea about what public safety actually looks like. And um, in that every year we have had a sustained campaign um, and wanting to defund DPD. Uh, the language that we used back then in 2016 was divest, invest, just seven, well, I'll say, yeah, about a year ago now, last um, 2019, uh, we were saying reimagine public safety. Um, and as an organizer, what Minneapolis did when they made the call and demand to defund the police saw this as an opportunity to um, further our campaign around reimagine public safety, understanding that there is this uh, unifying message that said defund the police. And we were like, exactly, this is exactly what we've been wanting. That's what we've been fighting for. And so I um, want to thank our comrades who made that palatable and made it irresistible for us here in Dallas um, because folks are like, yeah, we saw a bunch of black and brown women of color like doing this work. And, and now here we are, uh, there's an opportunity to, to actually get some popular support around the city budget. Um, and so 
founding member of a coalition called In Defense of Black Lives Dallas. Um, and we operate with the understanding that our fight is local, but we want to be a part of a national fight, which is the movement for Black Lives. Um, and so with that, we were able to sustain a mass action for over 120 days in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and so for us here in Dallas, as a huge win um, because it has changed the organizing landscape for us, for folks who have been on the ground doing this work. Um, but it invited so many people to be a part of what it looks like to be a decision maker and have autonomy when it comes to uh, governance and um, what they decide in regards to prioritizing uh, money over our lives and what they value and what communities and what neighborhoods in our city they value. Um, we're currently fighting for um, the fact that we were able to cut $7 million from the $24 million overtime that they wanted to spend on DPD. Uh, but in the course of them voting to cut the budget over the last couple of months, they have taken that money back and spread it to uh, what they're calling non-lethal weapons, which we understand are uh, ways to surveil us um, here in South Dallas, where I live, um, but as, other, as, um, as well as other tactics um, that has caused a lot of harm over the last couple of months. Um, I, I show up in this work as a person who um, is invested in my own healing, but also um, committed to avenging the suffering of my own formerly incarcerated mother, um, and also watching my grandmother over the last 15 years mourn and have to drive back and forth three hours to East Texas um, because her son, you know, was in prison for uh, criminal charges around um, selling marijuana. Um, and I had to witness that for 15 years. And so I'm committed to this fight recognizing that there is a world where Black girls can grow up with their mothers um, and not have a system take them away from them, as well as grandmothers get to see their children grow up um, and not be impacted by the carceral system. And so um, I'm committed to this work with the understanding that there's an affirmative vision um, and future that we all get to live in and it allows us to thrive. Carissa, you want to jump on in here, introduce us and, and let us know kind of what's going on with you on, a, on the national side? Yeah, and it's so good to see you, beloved. Um, how y'all doing? My name is Carissa. I use she and her pronouns. Uh, I am a black, fat, uh, caramel skin, uh, caramel skin queer woman um, who I am based in the South, but I'm originally from um, East Oakland, California. Uh, and I am the National Field Director for the Movement for Black Lives. Um, so for folks who don't know, the Movement for Black Lives is an ecosystem of over 150 Black-led organizations, many of which are on this call today. Uh, we are abolitionists. We believe that prison, police, and all other institutions that inflict harm must be abolished. We believe in transformation and a radical realignment of power. We are anti-capitalist. We center those most directly affected, and we believe in organizing and organization. Um, and so, you know, we we are organizations across the country who are invested in um, shifting the conditions for Black people in really radical and beautiful ways. And so, we've had the opportunity to show up and flank organizations and formations like the Coalition in Dallas, um, uh, BLVC. Uh, BYP 100. And yeah, you know, we we are a container for Black-led organizations to come together and to deepen our analysis together, to build strategy together, and to advance um, 
uh, campaign work. And so this summer I had the opportunity to uh, help co-lead uh, Freedom Summer um, and then additionally Freedom Fall and, and Ban had Freedom Summer Fellows, Dallas had had Freedom uh, Fall and, and Summer Fellows. Um, and essentially it's like, how do we put boots on the ground um, to advance our campaign work? Um, and, you know, defund took off, you know, people have been banging abolition for a very long time. Um, and so we were, as, as many folks, surprised how quickly folks connected to defund. Um, and so really excited to continue to put a wedge um, in, in and, and break open the cracks in, in the systems that we know exist. Um, and so, yeah, I won't take up too much time because I'm ready to get in conversation. Great. So, so grateful to have y'all here. Uh, so, so I want to just start with, with, you know, reflecting and, and, and this is a debrief, right? Like reflecting on what have been some of the impacts and initial lessons of this year and particularly like where have we seen the impact of the work? So I know for a lot of us, um, the, the fight was, was directed locally in all of our spaces usually, right? And, and the city budgets uh, were a lot of times the target or the symbol uh, we were using to, to advance this abolitionist effort that we all are unified on, right? Uh, and so we, we can name the ways in which we impacted, you know, city council and city budgets around the, the country here. We, we had a, a record high 21 of 50 members of city council uh, propose a no vote to a budget that actually proportionally increased investment to, to policing uh, uh, during this demand to, to defund. Uh, but I think more importantly in our campaign, we were able to train over 2000 people uh, socially distant as well as virtually adapting to the pandemic around direct action tactics, around how to facilitate conversations, around how to medic, um, how to just discuss and understand abolition, uh, to push out a decentralized, self-organized uh, campaign of dozens of direct actions and mutual aid all throughout the city. Uh, and so for us, I think the work that we were doing and the impact we were seeing on our folks and seeing people name themselves as more confident or identifying as abolitionists uh, by the end of the fall in ways they did not at the beginning of the spring uh, felt like our greatest victory. Uh, and so I, I wanna kind of just pass it around from Minneapolis to Dallas to like the, the, some of the bird's eye view uh, of what has been some of the impact of this year and just this immediate really tight nine month span that has been so transformative for us here in Chicago. Hello, I, yeah, I guess I can go first again. Um, yeah, also wild, y'all have 50 city council members. We have 13 and I thought that that was a lot. That's wild to me. Okay, anyway. Um, yeah, so I mean, even without the um, global uprisings that were happening, we're also, as folks know, um, in a pandemic. Um, and I think that has also shifted the conditions which brought uh, the conditions that brought the uprising, which I'll talk about a little bit later as well. Um, but I like the the one thing that like even has shifted in myself, which I was pretty surprised around was like, I always in theory knew that abolition is necessary towards black liberation, but I didn't actually think that that was a possibility that I could create. Right. And I think that what this what this, what this uprising did this last six months is actually gave space for folks to realize, even within the chaos, quote unquote, that was happening, that like actual transformative change could happen, right? Um, and I think the most momentous thing that I've seen is the way in which we have organized our partner organizations. Um, and just like the, the, the connections that folks are having with abolitions in their own um, areas of work as well, right? So when we talk about like, 
We have an organization called SWAP, which is a sex organizers working pro- or sex workers organizing project, um, and just how they have intrinsically tied abolition to their missions and their work, um, ha- and have also been moving an abolitionist perspective. Or even when we t- talk about um, substance use and like harm reduction, like actually how do we utilize abolition in those spaces as well has been like really interesting for me to look, um, learn and talk about and talk through with other folks. And just like, even like thinking about how when we put out abolitionist political education, people are actually on our side and people understand that like, this is actually the pathway towards liberation. And we just need to do that deep education work. Um, and I think the last thing that I'll say as far as like how we've changed Besides like giving giving um, black folks specifically in Minneapolis, but um, folks in Minneapolis, like the room to organize and the room to dream is, um, God, I missed it. I totally forgot what I was going to say. Give me one second. I will think of it. I will think of it. I'm going to pass it and then I'm going to, if I come back to it, I will. Because it was a gem. It was definitely a gem. But I'm going to pass it and then I'll, I'll come back. All right. Just let me know, Lucia. Give me a signal or something. Um, yeah. So for us in Dallas, you know, just to remind folks, I'm in Texas. I'm from Dallas. Um, I can imagine folks have all types of tropes and stereotypes about Texas. And I'll say this is a it's a really hard place to organize in. Um, and what I can say has changed in our city um, has been around like the the specific cases that folks like launch campaigns and actions around, right? For us over the years, it has constantly been police crimes happen. And then um, we make demands from the people, which are like indictments, uh, body cams, a number of police reform things that come up. And uh, for us in this moment, there's this opportunity to have a deeper recognition of the systemic issues around police crimes, right? Um, And for us, the mainstream piece was to offer up this police budget and give people an opportunity to engage in in a way that says you actually have the power to decide these things. Um, And then to go beyond that and and offer abolition as a pathway for us to actually see liberation and giving folks access to the very things that they deserve and need, right? From housing to healthcare to a number of things. And we know that the pandemic has absolutely like uncovered um, so much of the inequities that are happening, not only nationally, but across the state, but then locally in our city. And so um, it was exciting to see such a shift around uh, the level of consciousness um, being a, being a, uh, uh, risen in the city, um, residents getting this opportunity to play an active role in who gets to benefit and not benefit in our city budget and our county budget. Um, you know, for us, it has constantly been like particular organizations that launch campaigns when folks like Jordan Edwards or uh, Botham Jean um, were killed by DPD. Um, and it's always the same police reform demand. Um, and, and I respect the folks who, you know, especially the families, right? Like families demand these things and we want to be sure to take that as, um, as, as what they want. But for us in this opportunity, we really gave folks a, a liberatory, affirmative vision and uh, idea about what our, f- our future can look like, um, not only in the city budget, but when we come together and take care of each other, right? And so mutual aid was a huge piece of our work. Um, I would say um, um, the, the uh, political education that we did, the direct action training, like we followed so much of what was happening in Minneapolis and Chicago. Like I reached out to Austin and was like, we need to do a mass training. Like our folks want to, what they want to get deep about this. They want to understand like how they can plug in. Um, and I've also learned a lot just outside of coalition building, like we tried to take some of the momentum theory of change. I went through Black Momentum last August um, and saw the trigger moment that was happening, 
but then kind of late, kind of fell back into my traditional community organizing skills, um, but still tried to create this decentralized way for individuals to be a part of our space. And so we actually have a lot of individuals in our coalition. Um, and I'm thankful for the folks that like allowed us to pick up the phone and ask questions. Cause for me, that was just new. Like I am used to, you know, partnering up with the labor unions and the member based orgs. And now I have a ton of folks that um, are coming with different experiences that actually sharpened our, our, our organizing here in the city. Um, and so I want to thank those folks because that for me, that it really transformed how I see myself organizing in the city moving forward. Um, and yeah, and I, and I feel like it also allowed us to make this broader case and fight around um, issues like environmental justice. Um, in Southern Dallas, there's a community that is experiencing what we're calling a shingle mountain, which is a bunch of like illegal hazardous waste where poor black people live in the city. Um, and we made a case for them and what that means to fight for them in the city budget outside of just this defund the police piece, um, um, as well as um, uplifting the need to protect black trans women. Dallas is leading in black trans women death and violence. And so um, there's an opportunity to mainstream the fact that we need to protect black trans women in, in Dallas and that it is of this city to do that, right? Not only the community, but of this city. Um, and so, so much has changed and so much has been won. And for me, uh, what I saw was this opportunity to make what was happening so irresistible that like thousands of people engaged. Like we, we touched about 7,000 folks in the city, um, but then this petition that we launched um, on June 1st, after a week, we got 27,000 people to sign it and we're on our side. And I've, I've never experienced such a thing in my city. Um, and so um, I just want to name those things as exciting for us as folks who traditionally, yeah, are overlooked. And, you know, Dallas doesn't get to be a part of these national conversations. And so it was exciting to know that so many people are on our side. So real quick, before you jump in, Carissa, this is Damon again, and I just got an accessibility note that we have to, uh, for speakers, we have to say our name. Uh, each time we jump back in, and I think we have to slow our pace down just a little bit. But thank you so much for that, uh, Mercedes. Carissa, I remembered you... what I was going to say. This oh, is... You, you, Chris, you is that okay? All right, cool. I will try to speak some slower. This is Aluchi. I am a fire sign, so, you know, everything's excitable to me. Um, gang, gang. So, yeah, I think the one thing that I was going to say that we learned um, was that um, and that the city learned was that uh, the, the the focus on police is actually not advantageous to us. And like, how do we actually talk about what we want, right? Like, what are what are the things that we're actually advocating for? And understanding like the budget is actually more than just police. We also know that there is a misallocation of resources in general. Um, so how are we actually investing in the ways that we need to rather than um, like going hyper-specific on like the police, right? And like abolition is actually the destruction of all systems, not just the system of policing. So like, what does it actually look like for us to like say, this is the agenda that we want, um, this is a platform that we're looking for as um, Minneapolitans or the city of Minneapolis um, and like advocating for those. Like, how are we actually giving space folks, um, giving, giving folks space to actually dream about what are the ways and what are the alternatives, what is needed and all of that. And I also wanted to give another huge plug uh, and shout out to CPD because y'all's um, political education is actually the same political education that we use in Minneapolis. Um, and that was galvanizing our folks uh, to be able to dream. So thank you for that and I'll pass it over to Carissa. Beautiful. Yeah, everybody was using y'all trainings. Uh Carissa, um yes, y'all put out some good good tools. 
Um, so I, you know, as, as folks named, we, what we saw this summer was a culmination of multiple storms. So it was both the, like the most visible arm of police violence, um, excuse me, the most visible, uh, arm of, of the carceral state inside of police violence. It was the pandemic. It was a, a president with fascist tendencies. It was the, the West coast being on fire, like, uh, you know, people getting $1,200, uh, you know, uh, unemployment rates at, mm-hmm. at, at its highest. So all of those things created the conditions that, that we all bore witness to and, and were inside of. Um, and I know my com- comrade, Andrea Ritchie is, is on the line and she, you know, sent me some, some cheat sheets around like just some of the wins that she's been tracking, you know, over a hundred million dollars divested from policing, um, uh, investments in non-police safety strategies clocking in at over $50 million, police-free schools winning campaigns across the country. My first political home was a, or is, is an organization called the Black Organizing Project. Um, and they they started a campaign to get the police out of their schools uh, 10 years ago. And in Oakland, the police have their own police, the schools have their own police force. So it's not like just, you know, the police go there, but they have their own police force. And they were able to win that campaign this summer um, because of not only that ongoing work that they've been able to do over the last 10 years, but also the energy in the streets um, from our folks. And so, the, and, and, and then there was also, so these anecdotal stories, my family um, on my father's side is from the um, is from Washington, D.C., the south side of D.C. And I, you know, they know I'm an organizer and oftentimes they troll me when I go home and my uncles is like, yo ass always trying to go to jail for some bullshit, huh? Or what you what you doing now to get arrested? And and when I went home because we were doing some some actions on Juneteenth, um, my cousin, uh, who is a postal worker, um, came up to me and was like, I'm so proud of you, cuz. Like, you on the front lines. You doing this. This is what we, our people need. And so just a shift in, like, at mass, folks' understanding of the role of policing, not just accountability for police officers, was, was, was you know, pretty profound. Um, and, and the way that we brought culture into that fight, you know, I'm, I still watch, um, a couple of videos that M4BL made, you know, the we're winning video, the video of, of y'all, um, in in Minneapolis where we spliced together the, you gonna lose your job and the get the fuck out of here. You know, I was like, this is such a game of Thrones. Shame, shame walk. Um, so the culture that we were able to bring in, into this work was was really amazing. Um, and that it's rooted, is deeply rooted in like us building towards political alignment. So, you know, Barbara Ransby is on the, on the line as well. And Barbara is somebody who I consider both a friend, a comrade and a mentor. And she is consistently saying, where are we building alignment? How do we continue to push for alignment? Because what is going to consistently happen is institutions 
folks in positions of power coming in and trying to dismantle what we believe our vision to be. And it's only going to be our steadfast commitment and alignment that's going to be able to move us through. Um, and so it's been a really, really remarkable and, and you know, traumatic um, and hard uh, eight months. Um, and the movement is better for it. There are, um, you know, people who connect to uh, our vision, our language, um, our fights in ways that 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 they haven't before. And so, um, you know, I believe that we we need to keep winning. And so one of the things that I think we're really excited to do in 2021 is really kick kick up um, our commitment to, to alternatives. And so part of it is around like redirecting those, those resources to investments, but we also need to be clear that we have to build some of those alternatives. We can't rely on the same state that habitually builds harmful institutions to build the institutions that we need. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I'm most excited about um, us digging into those alternatives around safety, around energy, around food, um, around education, around health. Uh, 2021 is the year we come in to get with ours. Damon, real quick. Um, this is Mercedes again. Um, there's just a lot of Midwest Chicago love and I appreciate it, but I have to name the Southern organizers out of Jackson, Mississippi, who introduced and taught uh, our Dallas organizers the People's Assembly framework. Um, and so we were able to actually build a people's budget um, from introducing the People's Assembly in August, right before our budget fight. And so shout out to Rakia Lumumba for giving us some time here in Dallas. Shout out, shout out. Uh, thank you for that. So Damon, again, uh, and, and, and looking at our time, I think I got one last question. Um, and so for folks that know me, I'm a, I'm a big question ask, asker. So I'm gonna make it big on purpose to give a few different entry points uh, uh, for folks to jump in. Uh, so I, I wanna talk about the relationship between the high time and some of these lows that I think folks who've been in the movement for a few years have experienced and how really the the the, the balance or the dialectic between these organic moments that bring out the, the, these popular energies um, and then these organized, longer sustained, protracted struggles. Uh, and really at the, 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 the pinnacle of that tension is uprising. Um, and so, you know, as we know, in most cases, uh, you know, cops start riots um, here in Chicago, folks were trapped downtown in ways that escalated and like opened up the seal. Uh, but once that seal is open, it does something to our people. Um, it is both a transformative and a traumatic experience for so many of us. Uh, I know for myself, going back to Ferguson, uh, you know, I would not be organizing. I would not found myself in collective movement if it wasn't for that, that people-based community gentle uprising. I just want to shout out Ferguson for, for where we are now. Um, and so my question for y'all as folks have been organizing through these different waves uh, is one, now that we've experienced a few uprisings, uh, uh, what lesson would you want to take for the next time it goes up, right? Like what, what are some things in your back pocket you got um, that maybe somebody listening in the future may hear or in a different city or just for your own folks? Um, and, and within that, what are some of the struggles in, in the low time when things aren't as hot uh, that we are now trying to prepare for or preempt uh, or, or get ready for because for folks listening, right? Like just historically grounded, um, 
the the conditions for uprising are still here. Uh, and this next decade could very possibly be a hot one. Uh, we just saw $5 trillion go be be pushed to the to the top 1% while our people are struggling. The police are not going to get less violent. We promise you that. And just to ground us historically, in 1967 and 1968, my numbers might be a little bit off, but respectively, there were 132 and 133 uh, official uprisings that happened, right? And so there is a precedent for this to be continuing, that we're not at the end of something, we're at the beginning of something. So for everybody, what, what are the, the challenges or the lessons between the high time and the low time that usually gets clashed uh, by these explosive, really intense uprising moments. I know that's a big one, so take it out however it moves your spirit in whatever order. Lessons from uprising, anybody wanna, wanna jump in there? <laughs> I was just trying to be nice, but I can start if you folks don't wanna start. Um, hey y'all, this is Aluchi again. Um, yeah, I think for me, the huge lesson that I learned is that we cannot move at the, at the pace of white supremacy and capitalism to actually gain liberation. Um, and I think that even one of the hugest, the biggest lessons that us personally, Black Visions learned is that if you are not moving with community, you are actually not moving community. Like if you are not moving with community, you're not moving community. Um, trying to intentionally talk slow um and specifically the low times um actually matter more than the high times do to be completely real um one of the reasons why i do think that um the uprising happened in minneapolis how it did um was because black visions has been organizing against the police and divesting from police for at least two three years right we've had campaigns um, divest invest campaigns in Minneapolis for two years. Um, and like with those low times is the time to do the deep relational organizing that's necessary to, to sustain the high points, right? Um, so like, how are we actually doing the political, the, the abolitionist radical um, political education that's necessary so that when high times happened, we're actually more skilled, we're actually more engaged, we actually have more political education that's necessary for us to push really radical ideals and radical our, our radical vision as well. Um, I don't actually believe that um, basic human rights are radical, but that is the, the narrative that is spun to us. Um, so those are just a couple of lessons that um, I've learned and I'll pass it on because I know we don't have much time. This is Mercedes. Um, thanks for that that framing and offering, Aluchi. It helped me. Um, I think for for us locally, um, is is trusting all the strategies that are going to be necessary to get us to this abolitionist future, right? Um, and I'm saying this as someone who has been organizing for over a decade and thinks that there's like maybe six or seven ways that you should do this, but I was introduced to so many different ways of how we can engage our community and how we can be in deep community with them. Um, and I think a lot of that uh, requires trust. Um, again, we were trying to have a coalition and also decentralize it. And so that introduced us to a lot of strangers, that introduced us to a lot of people that we hadn't been in community with. And in that, the low moments, we're just even trying to figure out decision-making and like, what should we do next at this iteration of our campaign? Um, and as we are now in this phase of debriefing ourselves internally, um, you know, we're having more honest conversations about 
um, moments where we should have just trusted each other and allowed each other to, you know what, let's do, we should have did that in July, you know, we should have did this, we should have. Um, and so in that, um, being okay with like failing up, right. Cause in this moment to me, I don't, I think us being committed to organizing and, and doing this work, like it isn't a failure. Um, and I think in my moments, in my head, I was like, if we do this and fail, then, you know, we're failing our community. And, and it was a, it's a hard critique to have to myself. And it was a hard critique that I was honestly giving to others. Um, and I'm also trying to speak from the eye and not speak from our coalition. But as I think about the moments that we're in, in regards to debriefing, um, just trusting all the strategies and experiences that our folks are bringing. Um, and that we were, we're going to be fine, especially when the next uprising comes. Like at this point, I'm just going to ask for everyone to do the thing, whatever you want to do, I'm going to follow you and we're going to follow you and we're going to trust each other. Um, and, and yeah, and learn and grow. Right. Cause the important part is, is these moments where we're in it. And then we get to, to Oluchi's point, not move at the pace of whiteness, um, and have a moment to reflect and rest and, and reassess what all we experienced and learned. Um, this is Carissa. Uh, I, I would add that like uh, it's infrastructure building time when you're in when you're in those lows. Um, it's, you know, time to be doing real base building work, uh, knocking on people's doors, talking to folks in the community. Uh, part of the reason why we were able to advance the defund narrative um, so so quickly, so so broadly was not only the energy on the streets, but it was these organizations that had committed to be inside of a long-term strategy together. Um, and, and that work had taken six years, you know, so the movement for Black Lives was born a long time ago. Um, and, and so, you know, that is the, the, the long hard work that is some folks consider not to be sexy. Um, but it's the work that actually moves the goalpost, um, to be able to, to advance our work. Um, and, and I think, yeah, when I, when I think about Lowe's, um, I think about the uh, the the harm and trauma it does to our bodies um, and to our people to be inside of um, this heightened sense of um, you know anxiousness and uh, urgency all of the time, and so really prioritizing um, doing doing the community care work that that we have to do. You know, I. I I use the term community care as opposed to self-care because I don't think that we can divorce our own care from our uh, accountability to our community. Um, but but it's 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 opportunities for us to prioritize that and to put in practices that allow us to be able to withstand that um, those practices through these heightened moments. Um, because this, you know, we're we're inside of a protracted struggle. You know, there are organizations like Critical Resistance that have been banging on about abolition for, you know, years and years. You know, I'm from Oakland and hold the legacy of the Black Panther Party pretty closely. And, you know, they were inside of these same fights. And so understanding that we're inside of an arc, that we're standing on the shoulders of giants, and that um, whether we're in a high or a low, uh, being able to bring that historical wisdom and knowledge forward um, to keep our people grounded is important. And I really appreciate being in this space with y'all. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's Damon again. Uh, so powerful. And so many of the, the, the things that emerge really resonate uh, with, I think, what we're feeling here in Chicago. So I heard um, setting our own pace and making space for rest and we can't be on white supremacy's calendar. I heard the, the importance of, of trust um, and, and allowing ourselves to, to uh, move at the pace of our own excitement and creativity, allow folks to do them, uh, the importance of, of community care, of infrastructure building, of, of, of uh, looking at ourselves in this long arc uh, uh, of time that is not linear and that, that we are continuing a legacy. Uh, all of those things resonate so deeply for us here in Chicago as well. And really grateful for this conversation because in many ways, we are a decentralized movement of decentralized movements, right? Uh, and so we do all of this decentralization to, to be more dynamic, but I think it's important to decenter and recenter. And I feel like that's what, what this discourse or this dialogue allowed us to do is to, to connect and recenter a little bit. So thank you so much, Oluchi, Mercedes, and Carissa for your time and your work um, and the sacrifices that y'all make for our people. Uh, it, it is appreciated and it makes what we do here in Chicago more possible as well, because uh, we, are, we are interconnected and none of us are separate. We are not alone. We are a community on a national level. So appreciate you so much. Uh, please, please, we'll have links to make sure you can follow their work. Uh, and I'm going to pass it back to Asha to keep this thing going. Much love to y'all. Much love to Minneapolis, Dallas and the Movement for Black Lives. Thank, Thank you, Damon. Yes. Thank you to... Uh, this is Asha again. Um, thank you to, to Aluchi, Damon, and Carissa. Um, just uh, as an access note, this, this is Asha speaking. I'm a light-skinned Black person with locks pulled tightly back behind my head, and I'm wearing a blue shirt and sitting in front of a window. Um, yeah, that was really powerful and wonderful, and, and thank you. I'm definitely sitting with uh, much of what um, all of you shared. Um, and to move us into the next portion of our program tonight, I am so excited to introduce abolitionist organizer, thinker, teacher, Miriam Kaba, um, who has done honestly just so much to shape the landscape um, and the ideas that we've been organizing around in Chicago. Um, she is someone who has really informed and shaped how so many of us understand abolition, um, how we understand abolitionist demands, how we chose, you know, defund the police as, as a step and as a demand that we should be calling for versus maybe other things. I've had the pleasure of getting to learn from and work with and under Miriam. Um, and, you know, one of, one of those uh, first moments was uh, the, one of the first times I saw formations start popularizing the stat that we continue to, to call on and criticize in Chicago that uh, CPD makes up 40% of the city's operational budget was the We Charge Genocide Coalition that Miriam really uh, convened and, you know, where I met several of the folks who are now involved in the defund CPD campaign um, and leading other abolitionist formations in Chicago. Um, and so I see, you know, you, Miriam, the, the connections you've made, the organizations and projects you've started or seeded still here, um, and the ideas you've shared and, and just your presence here in Chicago organizing, um, even though you yourself are not here. And so, um, yeah, I'm just really excited to hear from you. And yeah, with that, I will welcome Miriam Powell. Thank you so much, Asha, for having me today. Um, thank you to everybody who organized this 
gathering and this celebration, really, of um, what we've been kind of talking about for the last hour or so, which is um, this demand to defund um, on the way towards abolishing policing and the prison industrial complex more specifically. Um, so I was asked to give a few remarks and then I'm gonna have an opportunity to talk with organizers, which is what I love the most. Um, and so we'll be able to do that, I'm very excited. Um, I have so much love and appreciation for Chicago um, and for my time there. It's really a second home. Always will feel close to everybody there and to the work that you all do. So I'm just excited to cheer you on um, from New York City and Lenape land here. I'm not on camera because I hate being on camera. So you'll just see an image of me, which is the back of my head with a bullhorn black silhouette. That's what appears on the screen. Um, I really appreciated uh, Damon who made a reference to history and Carissa's reference to the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Um, I was just recalling that point seven in the Black Panther Party 10 point plan reminds us of the importance of creating a list of demands. Um, they call in point seven is we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people, other people of color and all oppressed people inside the United States. Such a clear, urgent, powerful demand. Um, I've also had Fred Hampton on my mind this month. On December 4th was the 51st anniversary of his murder in his own bed by the Chicago Police Department and the Federal Bureau of Information, the FBI. And then last night I screened a new movie about this murder called Judas and the Black Messiah, which I think will be interesting for folks to um, to see and watch, particularly people who don't remember that particular period in history. Right after the shooting where the police fired 99 shots, state's attorney Hanrahan called a press conference where he announced that the Black Panthers had organized a vicious and unprovoked attack on the police who had actually appeared at Hampton's apartment at 4.45 a.m. that morning to supposedly search for illegal weapons. There were seven survivors of the targeted murder, including Hampton's fiance, Deborah Johnson, who was eight months pregnant at the time and who just 20 or 25 days later had their one and only son, Fred Hampton Jr., all those survivors were arrested and they were charged with attempted murder. It took about 13 years of litigation, organizing and agitation and led by a lot of lawyers at the People's Law Office, people in the community on the West Side and beyond, lots of protests in the streets. Finally, they were able to prove that the shootings were actually assassinations that were organized by the FBI. Um, as part of the COINTELPRO program. I thought I'd just share those historical moments that 
to suggest that our present is built upon a history of white supremacy, of anti-Blackness, of attempted genocide and settler colonialism. And I think it's important to establish that context in order to properly understand where we are today and actually why we're here and to uplift once again that lineage actually matters, you know? This year, I, we were confronted again with justified outrage at police acting to kill with impunity. But I always like to remind us that the shooting deaths are just the tip of the aggregate devastation that's leveled on communities of color in particular, and that those particular kinds of aggregate forms of devastation include what Ruthie Gilmore teaches us, the organized abandonment of the state. And I think all of us have experienced this year the fact that we've witnessed, we're engaged in, we're part of this moment of organized abandonment by the state during a pandemic with one $1,200 check for a few people and very little else for folks to be able to survive. All this too is part of the struggle and the fight to defund policing. These things are connected. They're not separated from each other. But I really hope that we've arrived finally at a moment when more of us are interrogating why so many of us continue to demand that the police stop being the police, that our demands actually exceed that particular demand of the police to stop being the police, kind of a totalizing um, demand that gets us nowhere. It's kind of the, you know, addendum to the why do the police keep murdering Black people and others with impunity? Again, not a good question, actually, right? Because we know that policing has to be racist and has to be patriarchal, has to be ableist, has to be homophobic, has to be transphobic to actually meet its purpose. So if you want to maintain a white supremacist, cis, you know, cis patriarchal, uh, capitalist state, then particular groups have to be targeted, controlled and contained, right? And we need really just to have better demands. And to me, one of those better demands has ended up to be defund policing. We're in a particular place right now where our question to be asking to me is, what do we need to do to stop police from killing Black people and others with, with impunity? We need to start by reducing people's contact with the police altogether. We really have to defund police departments. So we have to invest in the commons. And how do we do these things? To me, that is the generative question, which actually would probably get us to true public safety. So it is really worrisome to me on a regular basis when I think about the fact that police abolition feels unthinkable to so many people. I think about how dangerous that is because it means that the police have actually thoroughly colonized and dominated our thinking to the point where we're even unable to imagine a world where they don't exist. But the fact of the matter is that we haven't always had police. And so we really shouldn't be thinking that we always will or that we always will have to. So we're in this really... I think, precarious moment 
where we have a window of possibility in our abolitionist organizing strategies. Again, a strategy that aims to reduce contact with police without increasing their legitimacy. That if we have to keep talking to our folks everywhere, talking about the fact that if we care about the violence of policing, then we should want as little a little of it as possible in any form. That we want to make sure that we're not, you know, amplifying calls for reformist civilian review boards, which actually serve to entrench police power. That we're not going to call for social workers to replace police if those social workers are imbued with the same mandates of surveillance and coercion as the police are, that we're gonna constantly be working on a strategy that shrinks the prison industrial complex. That's our work. I wanna kind of end by talking about the fact that violence is actually an inherent part of police and policing, that the police monopoly on the use of force isn't actually tangential or incidental, it's actually constitutive of the institution, which means that we're never going to be able to excise just the violence part of police violence while preserving the rest. Violence is actually central to police work. And what marginalized people are experiencing is not bad policing, it's just policing. And we really have to move from this kind of notion that what people are experiencing is some form of bad policing, no. It's simply policing. Once you get that through your head, you start to open up and think about all of this so differently. I really like what Patrick Blanchfield, writer and thinker, has suggested, which is that the police are always in our minds as a solution rather than as a problem. And this insight really should shape and focus the direction of our organizing. Too many people continue to see police as a resource to end violence rather than as significant purveyors of violence in our community and, frankly, escalators of violence even at protests. We have to actively help people, as has been mentioned before, divest from the idea that policing actually keeps us safe and that policing was developed to address public safety in the first place, which it was not. Abolitionist organizing insists that we focus on divesting, investing and experimenting. And all three of those are really important steps in the direction that we need to go. My friend Rachel Herzing always says, um, she's the executive director of the Center for Political Education and a longtime PIC abolitionist. And she always says that eliminating the PIC is actually gonna expand the context in which we can develop new ways of relating to each other, of building protection and of addressing harm. And she's right. At present, policing takes up so many resources and so much space that it actually crowds out opportunities for community-based solutions for addressing harm. And those community-based solutions, when they do exist, are always unfunded or underfunded. And some of the actual solutions are actively undermined by the police. So I think we are, you know, at least as I see it and the type of abolition that I pursue, that we really have to organize towards the elimination of policing while we attend to our community's immediate needs for safety. But having those needs for safety met shouldn't actually be the prerequisite for demanding abolition of the prison industrial complex. Our vision 
is a world where we have everything we need to live with dignity and where safety isn't achieved at the tip of a gun. It's really, really important in this moment for us not to get stuck on constantly having to, quote, come up with the solution. There is no one solution. That's what we're trying to get away from, right? The notion is that there's not going to be one lone thing that we're going to, quote, offer that's going to, quote, replace the one thing that we currently have, which are prisons, policing, and surveillance. That's not the way to move forward. The way to move forward is to constantly be iterating with new ways of trying to create new relations between ourselves and our other members of our communities. It's to be fighting for the big stuff that we need, which is like living wages and clean water and, you know, environmental justice for real and, you know, free housing and free health care and all the things that we need for the commons. And without the commons, by the way, we won't have public safety. And if we don't start clearly articulating that, we're just not going to be able to get closer to the horizon of abolition. We have to make these connections. These things are interconnected. They're not separate. And so the last thing I just want to leave with is a notion of, you know, we can take lots of lessons from lots of people. And I take a lot of lessons from Asada Shakur, who said years ago that the only way to live on this planet with any human dignity at the moment is to struggle. And struggle matters quite a bit, you know struggle with an idea of where we want to go, an attempt to actually, again, somebody mentioned Barbara and Barbara talking about alignment, aligning where we can, um, though, you know, I, I'm against unity as a principle, but I, I do believe in alignment. I do believe in strategic relationships that get us from where we are to where we need to go. I appreciate sociologist Dan Green, who tweeted a couple of days ago, that one of the most beautiful things about the uprising for him was that so many people and so many groups just knew what to do, right? He added, they weren't always right. They could have done more. It would have gone further with a deeper base, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a reflexive solidarity where organizations offered jail support, supplies, shelter to the youth in the streets, exceeded anything I've seen in my lifetime. The tip of an increasingly larger iceberg based in unions, tenants and workers, immigrant defense and PIC abolition. And I think we should hold on to that in this moment to understand how many people knew what to do. That says a lot to us, right? that we knew what to do and that we had, we, you know, there's a constant push and a lament on the left on how weak the lefts are, not one left, but the lefts, how weak the lefts are. And yes, we're weak on some points, but we're also building strength all the time in multiple different ways that are unseen and seen. And this uprising really showed something. And I think it's worth us sitting with that this year and holding on to that into our future and building on that. So thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to talking with the Chicago crew that's coming up next. I don't know who's coming in. Maybe Damon is taking us to the next, or Asha. Um, yeah, I think 
Bria can come on and join us as well as Jennifer, um, and I'll pass it back. Um, yeah, to, to Miriam, who's going to help facilitate this conversation with um, the three of us who are all uh, leads in different parts of the Defund CPD campaign. Wonderful. I'm so glad to be back um, and talking with the three of you who've been so integrally connected to the work of organizing the Defund CPD campaign. Um, maybe we could just start off uh, by one of you sharing um, how the Defund CPD campaign came together. Um, and then I'll ask another question of another of you. And we'll go that way. So who wants to give us the background on how it started? Uh, Don't make me call on you because I will do it. Um, I'll, I'll jump in and then I'll maybe Jennifer, if you want to um, add some things into um, so, you know, it's, it's been kind of mentioned, I think Damon spoke a little bit to it earlier, right? Um, May after the, the murder of uh, George Floyd, as well as Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and, and you know, other uh, kind of high profile uh, instances of police policing, as you put it. Um, uh, there were, you know, uprisings, you know, very much watched Chicago be inspired by that, that image of the police station burning um, in Minneapolis. Um, and people took to the streets on May 31st. Um, you know, one of the, yeah, just kind of like most bizarrely spectacular, like protest moments I've been to, um, you know, cop cars were burning and, and, you know, people were, people were angry and, and, and it was a moment of uprising. Um, I think also like a few months into the, the public health and economic crisis of coronavirus that was um, really, I think, exposing the truth about the systems that we live under to a lot of people um, and exposing like the reality of capitalism as a system that is fundamentally incompatible with putting the collective good before profit. Um, and so out of that moment, um, you know, there were several days of intense protests. It was like, I, everywhere I went, I like stumbled upon another protest for like a few days of that week, um, type thing in Chicago. And, um, you know, there was a, a particularly intense one where, um, the cops got, uh, you know, violent and arrested some, some of our, our comrades. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, just an experience that some of us who then went on to start the campaign had together, um, really just, you know, struggling to de-arrest some folks and, and having that experience and what, you know, felt to me like a, a yeah, targeted cops being angry about the protests and wanting to beat up some organizers um, in Hyde Park. Um, and after that, a group of Black abolitionist organizers came together to kind of process the moment we were in and also strategize to how we can, um, as organizers, show up to meet the political moment. As folks that have been calling for like defunding the police, you know, maybe in a quieter, you know, chorus for a long time, um, how we could meet the moment and create some type of container that would allow this to help us grow our power in a sustained and long-term way. Um, that kind of met the scale of the mobilizations and uprisings that we're seeing. You know, we've, we've seen moments of uprising and moments of mass mobilization where people take to the streets 
And then like a few weeks later or a few months later, you know, that kind of energy and those numbers are gone. And what can we do to kind of create a container uh, that can fuel some of this organizing for us to be able to like leverage our power um, and keep people. Um, and so we, we launched that with a weekend of mass trainings. We trained like 500 people that first weekend. Um, and, you know, these big, massive, like socially distant outdoor trainings that we did um, and really brought folks in around the idea of abolition, like why defund the police as a demand, history of Chicago organizing, how do you talk to somebody about defunding the police and, and things like that. Um, so that's just like a little bit um, about our intention, how we came together. I don't know if Jennifer wants to say anything else. Thank you, Asha. Um, Jennifer, can you jump in and let us know a little bit um, Asha started talking a little bit about the work you've done. Um, can you expand on the work that you've done um, through the campaign and also talk a little bit about how it's structured? Sure. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, this is Jennifer here. Um, I am a light-skinned Black woman. I have my hair currently pulled back. I am wearing some silver like mini hoops. They're not that big. Um, and then I also have a black turtleneck on. And in the background, it's a little bit gray and there's like hecka like tote bags um, in the background as well. Um, so glad to be here. Um, I am an artist, I'm an educator and an organizer with Defund CPD as well as Let Us Breathe Collective. Um, and I'm one of the founding members of BAN um, and on steering committee for Defund as well. Um, so glad to be here with y'all. Um, yeah, so I think, and also just very honored to be here in conversation with like Miriam Cobble, what the heck. Um, so I just think a lot of um, the work that has continued since like July 3rd or since that kind of mass resistance weekend of trainings um, has really been around decentralization and really been around the main goal of helping folks organize where they're at um, and giving folks the tools to do that um, where they're at. Um, and so it's really been rooted in a lot of like political education um, and really equipping people with skills to like, you know, organize, you know, direct actions with skills to like talk to people about defunding and abolishing the police. Um, so it's really looked like uh, in particular in response to COVID really having to shift to kind of these larger like open air uh, trainings um, and also doing like a lot of virtual trainings like training committee like put out. I don't know how many trainings <laughs> within the past like two or three months, like um, just offering folks a uh, space to learn about mutual aid, to learn about like jail support, um, to learn about digital organizing and all the different aspects that are kind of involved in the campaign. Um, and I think the way that we were able to do all that is because the way that the campaign was structured was highly decentralized, right? So anytime that people came into the campaign, we really tried to empower them and encourage them uh, to be involved in places where they would have like the most impact or places that, where they would learn the most, right? Or grow in their capacity in some way. And so like for me, for example, being a part of this campaign more largely was like my first time, I think being in a part of like a campaign that, 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 that was this massive, that wasn't like related to like electoral politics or kind of like tied into like voting in some way. Um, and so I think for me, what the decentralized structure really helped was to nurture leadership in ways that I hadn't imagined before. Right. And so I was able to show up um, and expand my capacity um, and really um, be able to lead and develop in ways that I couldn't have anticipated, like in May. Um, and so, you know, I think the really decentralized structure also 
empowers um, people to work with each other um, and meet each other where we're at um, and really allows us to just kind of um, care for each other and hold each other um, in ways that are needed, like in this moment of pandemic and global uprising as well. Um, Yeah, so I feel like I did a good job of answering that, talking about kind of decentralization and what that means more largely in our campaign and how we really just want to encourage folks just to self-organize in this moment and really making all these organizing tools that a lot of the folks within the kind of steering have garnered over these years accessible to everybody um, and really ensuring that folks understand what it means when we, when we say defund the police. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, I'd love to turn to Bria. Bria, um, Jennifer mentioned uh, mutual aid as part of the work that some of you have been engaged in. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what is the connection of mutual aid to the defund CPD work that you all are doing and have been doing. Yeah, I can definitely talk more about that. Hi, everyone. My name is Bria. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a black woman with short curly hair, and I have clear glasses, and I'm sitting um, in a room with white walls and just white doors everywhere. Um, And yeah, just for a little bit more context about mutual aid. um, So yeah, the Defund CPD campaign has a bunch of committees, and so the mutual aid committee is one of those. And um, this summer, I've, or yeah, just for the past couple of months, really, I've been able to um, help our team of mutual aid members just really usher in what that looks like through an abolitionist lens as I'm learning, really, and as we're all learning um, that process, just like every every day as it comes. Um, and so we've started a new structure um, just as we're entering into our hibernation period, Um through um, just a mini team structure. So I'll talk a little bit about that, but how it's looked so far this summer um, has been a lot of focus on partnering with local organizations that are um, just doing different kinds of work. So we've partnered with um, jail support, rapid response. um, Yeah, just a a ton of, a ton of organizations like Humble Park Solidarity Network, the, Midwest Midwest Workers Association. Um, We've shown up at a couple of movie screenings in different neighborhoods. Um, And so we've been really trying to connect with um, just people in different communities, especially the South and West sides of Chicago. And most of our focus, um, just based on our capacity, has been focused on the South side of Chicago. Um, And we've done, we've used, like supply drives and supply distributions to collect supplies from different people um, and different organizations that want to support the work and um, have people just come grab the things that they need and drop off the things um, that they would want to share with the community. And so that's what it's looked like on a material level. Um, And so we've also tried to implement other things that aren't just this exchange of goods that people need um, as well. And so we're working really hard to um, really beef up that part of our work. Um, So that's sort of what the mini team structure, um, that's what we're trying to use the mini team structure to do. Um, And so we have a couple of mini teams on that list um, that are working towards healing and care 
for everyone in our committee, but also trying to um, bring people into that, into those spaces and the communities that I previously mentioned. Um, and so healing and care is one of those teams. We're also trying to do more activity planning and like a virtual slash COVID safe way to continue to build that community. Um, and then we have a number of other things like um, trying to start up a mutual aid summit to really get these organizations that are already doing the work more connected to each other. Because um, one of the observations that one of our members had um, was just that there are so many different kinds of mutual aid um, organizations and groups in Chicago, but they often don't know what's going on with each other and um, often don't know how to connect with each other to spread the word about the resources and about the work and about the political education that they're doing. So, um, so yeah, we're just trying to use that summit as one way, um, yeah, as like a culminating way to um, elevate the mutual aid work so that we can continue to do what we have been doing, um, but reaching more people on a larger scale, um, just so that we can continue to spotlight um, a lot of the things that you and some of the other speakers have mentioned, just about how um, the social services that we have can be weaponized against us, and um, just this air of colonialism and um, patriarchy and white supremacy, and how all of that um, we're sometimes can be desensitized to it. And so really trying to use, um, political education with, um, mutual aid through an abolitionist lens, um, to work towards reimagining the world that we want to see and live in. Um, and also really pulling on those, um, just ancestral and indigenous frameworks, um, as we continue to move forward with our mutual aid work. Thank you so much, Bria. Um, I wanted to bring up um, for Asha a question about kind of you've been, you know, you were part of the um, We Charge Genocide work, which for us predated uh, Mike Brown getting killed, uh, murdered uh, by about, a, I don't know, two or three months. So um kind of happened in, in the midst of organizing around Damo's uh, killing by the Chicago Police Department. Um, I wonder what you think about the trajectory of the last six and a half years or so, seven years uh, since then, as it relates to the demands that were made. If, you know, remembering, I remembering at that time, one of the biggest demands being made about body cameras um, we charge put out a, a statement that was saying this is not a good demand and here's why. Um, and moving from that demand for body cameras to within six and a half years, a demand to defund the police and in some cases to actually just abolish policing altogether. Um, what what do you what do you think accounts for that? kind of shift in, in focus and, you know, that it's happened in the lifetime of your organizing. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, thank you for that. Um, yeah, it does feel like, a, it feels like a different world, the landscape that we're organizing in now than um, it did in that, in that moment, we tried genocide came together in May of 2014. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, to kind of uh, build on what, what you started to say, you know, body cameras was a demand that was being put forth by a lot of people. Um, we tried genocide came together after the Chicago police department killed Damo, um, a young black person, Dom, uh, Damo or Dominique Franklin, um, who was killed by the Chicago police department, um, after he was tased, um, and then, you know, hit his head and then ultimately was killed from that, um, instance. And so things like body cameras or even like tasers that were kind of being put forth as, oh, like non-lethal strat, like things that police can do. Um, and part of our intervention was like, no, anything that's giving police more tools is giving more resources um, to, you know, this institution that is fundamentally violent and is fundamentally about using force uh, to maintain social order, to maintain right, racial hierarchy, and to justify inequality um, through criminalization. And so, um, yeah, I think we, it was a much smaller minority of people in the movement, it felt like, who were kind of calling out these these small reforms are like, oh, if they just do it a little bit differently, or if they just use, if they pulled like this thing off their belt instead of that thing, like maybe it would turn out differently. Um, and, you know, the other demand that was like, uh, like oftentimes the immediate thing that people would demand was uh, someone would be killed by, you know, a police officer, and then people would demand to, you know, jail killer cops was like the popular demand that I remember. Um, at that moment. And, you know, we tried to, it felt, it felt uh, hard to make those interventions um, in a meaningful way. Um, and now like the fact that defund the police is a popular demand, um, I think speaks to there being a more, uh, what has been seated as a more structural analysis. I think it's, it's not, you know, a coincidence that like budgets are where we're looking at a terrain of struggle, especially um, in this moment where, you know, all of these like uh, self-proclaimed progressive cities and just cities in general are pushing, you know, austerity, which I think is co connected to, you know, the fight to, to defund police, right. Where, um, you know, we're seeing like neoliberalism as the pushing of like gutting social services and, um, upholding, uh, militarized inequality, um, and rebranding it using the language of, of freedom and liberty. Um, and so I think that's what we're seeing play out at, at the level of like our local budgets. I think conditions mean that folks are, you know, kind of seeing that structural analysis and willing to, to call for those demands. And then at, at a movement level, right, there are so many organizations, you know, just so many Black organizations that did not exist six and a half years ago so many abolitionist organizations that, you know, as kind of Black Lives Matter has become popularized as, um, you know, in the moment of from, you know, Trayvon to um, Mike Brown and to the interventions around Say Her Name and Rakia Boyd um, in like that 2013 to 16 window where there was a lot of energy around this, you know, earlier folks talked about the lulls. And in the years since then, people have been building organizations, sharpening analysis, analyses, listening to Miriam Kaba and, you know, other abolitionist thinkers, um, and then have been and pushing, you know, the divest invest framework, um, you know, that, that, you know, the movement for Black Lives has also done a lot of seeding. And so all of those frameworks and leaders also who are 
developed, including myself, you know, out of those moments are kind of ready to like push on the edge of what's possible and call for something different in a moment like, like this one. Thank you for that. So either Bria or Jennifer, what are we going to do about Lori? What are we going to do y'all? Because I mean, I'm putting into the chat, just, you know, lifting up and, you know, um, and Jeanette Young is the most recent case of, I mean, you know, what are we calling just lies and deceptions and, you know, tripling down on the prison industrial complex I mean, and y'all were there talking about the, from the beginning saying she was a cop and warning that this is where we would be. And I'm just wondering what you all have to say about now this, you know, having such a hostile target in a city like Chicago and even the concept that, you know, she could be worse than Iran. Is that possible? Did we think that would be possible? Love to hear your thoughts. Okay, I could take a stab at this. Um, so I think for me, one thing that I want to remember and like that I try to remind myself of is that Defund CPD um, is a campaign that kind of moves around electoral cycles. And a lot of our work um, is not like based in just getting like people out of office. But I think Lori Lightfoot is someone that we need to like, definitely get out of office. And I think particularly this summer, um, when we shifted a lot of our work toward the budget cycle, um, Lori really became like a target, I think, in that fight. Um, and, you know, I think pushing a lot of our organizing efforts and work towards specifically the budget and towards specifically, I think, Lori's role in like planning um, and kind of deciding where money goes um, really shed a light on how anti-democratic like a lot of these processes are. Um, and how a lot of them are really inaccessible to like the public at large. And so I think for me in thinking about defund and how we tackle Lori is really um, focusing on massive like political education um, and really trying to particularly, I think, circumvent a lot of what the media is using, particularly mainstream media is using to scare people into thinking that the police need to be here or to scare people into thinking, right, that Chicago is one of the most violent cities in the country and that police keep us safe. Um, so I think a lot of our efforts and a lot of our energy, particularly in defund, really need to be geared toward like massive political education um, and getting people to be having these conversations in their, in their communities and where they're at. Um, so that when it comes time 2023, like people are already knowing, right? And and people who are involved in kind of this larger political landscape have to decide if they are going to be in alignment with Lori Lightfoot, this woman who has positioned herself against movement, positioned herself as like anti-Black, kind of released this like austerity budget, or if they're gonna align with people who are centering life, people who are centering kind of like this larger vision of care and this larger love politic. Um, and so, I think, again, I'm just centering education um, and centering uh, moving people as opposed to just focusing in on a target um, and kind of shifting political discourse as opposed to just focusing in on like Lori, um, I think maybe it's the more larger aim of the campaign. But Asha and Bria, if, if you want to hop in and 
and clarify. Go ahead, I, I think you were going to say something earlier. Love to hear from you. Yeah, I was just going to add that, um, yeah, pretty much what Jennifer said. And I think what um, either you, Miriam, or someone else earlier had mentioned, um, like really focusing on the, like whoever the person is um, at the time because they change. Um, but yeah, focusing on Lori, I think is a strategic move um, for part of it, but also really like continuing to do the base building that we've um, done in this campaign and like are trying to continue to do um, and really reaching reaching people where they are because ultimately we know that Lori is against us and we know that um, that is that's not going to change about her. And really um, it's clear that the community care that we're trying to um, work towards is not Lori's vision. So we have to focus on the people who, um, yeah, who the people who are a part of that community and who want to be. And so that really means um, doing what we can to expose, um, yeah, to expose what Lori's vision is to continue to do that and to continue to expose um, what like she and her allies are trying to do, but really focusing on like, this is what we have the power to do regardless of who is the mayor or regardless of who um, might be in a certain political office. And so really um, just focusing on like, this is who we are as people. This is the um, ancestral lineage that we have to pull from. This is the love politic that um, people have always had and that hasn't changed about us. And so we can really lean on some of those things instead of just becoming um, super absorbed with whatever craziness um, might come out of the mayor's office from one year or from one term to the next term. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, so we have a few more minutes, uh, short minutes to go. And I am wondering if uh, all three of you can address what's next for the campaign um, and what are you excited about in general as it relates to defund policing, you know, police abolition generally. So both things, what's next for the campaign and what are you excited about in general for this movement that everybody's working so hard to build? Any of you can pick up, but I'd love to hear from all three of you. Word. Um, I can hop in. This is Jennifer again. Um, really, I, you know, I think after a summer of just kind of like really kind of hitting the ground running, like organizing um, and really intense, I think periods um, of just togetherness. Um, I think what we're really uh, gearing and moving towards is an intentional period of rest. Um, within this campaign. So a lot of folks have been going since basically June um, and have not had time to just be still um, and really grieve, um, to be honest, because we have all like suffered, I think, in this moment from a, a deep sense of loss um, and have experienced a lot of just like death in our lives and in our communities. Um, and so really just shifting to rest and shifting to kind of being more internal um, and really doing a lot of the relationship building um, and political education that is necessary, I think, in, in order for us to be ready 
um, by the time the summer starts popping off. Um, and so really, I think taking the time to refine organizational structures and to like evaluate kind of these goals that we set at the beginning of the summer um, and really create systems and structures so that by the time we are done with this larger hibernation period in April, um, we can move forward and, and be stronger and, and more ready uh, to go. And then I think um, something that I'm really looking forward to um, just in this period of hibernation and more largely as Defund kind of expands next year um, is really making healing a much larger part of our organizing practice um, and making um, healing accessible path for folks who are within like this movement work um, because oftentimes we are not moving at the speed of our healing and we are just going, going and going. Um, and, you know, that can create unnecessary conflict. It can create kind of just unnecessary strife. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to being preemptive about our practice um, and being preemptive about um, that healing work so that we can all come to this work more whole um, and more ready and like more full. I can hop in, Asha, if you want to close. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks, Jennifer. And thanks, Miriam, for the question. Um, yeah, for the campaign and really for mutual aid specifically, um, that's the thing that I get the most excited about. Um, and that's like what I've been, what and who I've been able to work with um, the most um, in the past couple of months. And just our committee of people really excites me because um, we have people that really are so committed and um, just to the work, but also to each other and to learning. And that's um, been a huge thing that we've been trying to continue to develop and want to be able to do in this hibernation time. Um, and a huge piece of that is really just getting to know each other better because one of the things that we noticed, um, yeah, just as we were doing events and showing up to um, different events and things is that we would see each other in person as like, much as we could in a safe way. But after that, sometimes it would just be so focused on getting whatever done on the agenda. People didn't really know each other super well. And so we're really trying to take the time um, over these next couple months to figure out like, who are these people that we're working with and what do they love? Who do they love? Um, and really just getting to know them a little bit better in addition to um, figuring out like, okay, so we know the people in our committees better. Um, we love them already, um, but also who are our neighbors? Because if, if we're not really focusing on the local part of mutual aid and what our um, communities need and the neighbors around us, then what, what really are we doing? You know, it can't just be, um, yeah, it can't just be focused on like our committee or the specific campaign that we're working on, we really have to know the people around us. Um, and so a lot of, in addition to the hibernation um, period and for a lot of mutual aid folks, at least, that looks like getting to know each other better, um, just hanging out casually um, over Zoom or some sort of video platform, probably. Um, and then people are doing gardening and all kinds of stuff. But um, yeah, and then just getting to know our neighbors in a more intentional way. Yeah. Um, I too am excited that the campaign is kind of building hibernation, you know, taking a couple months to really like focus on on rest, on reflection, on studying, 
Um, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people like told me in the last six months that they like became an abolitionist because of something they, you know, got to be a part of. So really encouraging um, those folks and all of us to, to, you know, engage in some study, sharpen our, you know, our ideas, our frameworks, our tools um, for when we start fighting again in, in the spring and really putting forth what we want to see in, in the 2022 budget that we'll be fighting for in 2021. Um, but yeah, I think the thing that excites me, just like celebrating what we have done and won and how many people have really been involved. I mean, that, you know, we've had close to 2000 people go through our trainings as entry points to getting involved in the defund CPD campaign. We have like over 500 people that have like actually come to an organizing meeting and like joined our Slack and like done something with us. Um, I mean, to me, like the moment the city released, you know, that survey um, about the budget, 40, almost 40,000 people filled that out and 87% of them said they wanted to defund the police. Like for me, that was the moment where I was like, okay, we are winning um, because we are winning, winning the people. Um, and there are so many people that are with us that we're connected to now um, who we were not before. And, and that's just what excites me um, is, is that, and that's like who we get to continue building with. And there's like so, so, so many more people um, in our corner of fighting for, for abolition um, than there were before. And yeah, I'm excited to continue to, you know, flex that, um, to make, you know, Lori scared about reelection, um, to make these older people who talk about reallocating funds, but voted yes on that budget to make them scared. Um, and to just really pull, you know, more and more people <laughs> into um, our vision, vision for the world. And yeah, um, that's what I'm excited about. That's wonderful. Um, so uh, we we're at our time, and I want to thank you all for your work, for your efforts, for this uh, you know this wonderfully inspiring event. Um, and I just want to end by saying, you know, like we're in this fight for the long haul. It's a marathon. I think the fact that you all are modeling, taking time to rest and restore and then come back and keep fighting is such a beautiful thing for more people to also be incorporating within the organizing that they do on a regular basis, the organizing that we all do on a regular basis. I could not be more thrilled to see the work that you're all doing. I'm just your biggest cheerleader. Thank you for having me. I'm going to throw to Asha. Good night, everybody. Thanks so much, Miriam. We're yeah, just so happy that, that you came in and were part of this. And thank you, Bria and Jennifer. Um, Damon, you want to hop back on here with me for us to close out? I'm here. Uh, I'm just feeling moved. Thank you so much, Miriam, Jennifer, and, and Bria. Uh, and, and now we're getting into you know the spirits of thank you to everyone. Uh, to, to the tens of thousands of people that signed on to our demands, to all the folks that came through to the campaign, to the more than 50 orgs that endorsed and participated uh, and helped shape our, our campaign, all the folks in our, our six committees. Uh, but you had to put that slide up, that's perfect. <laughs> uh, uh, but we, we are in a spirit of really being thankful. Um, I just wanna acknowledge, right? Like, just remember this year, what were you doing in March? What were you doing in April? Uh, and collectively, we are in such a different place uh, nationally, locally, um, and so much more is possible. We saw ordinance 
um, in our city council that would not have been possible before. And there's so much more to come. So we can put up our thank you slide uh, to, to, to more directly uh, offer some love and appreciation and affirmation to folks. Uh, but, but I also want to thank, you know, Miriam again, not only for coming here, but for all the work that she did for 20 years plus to make this possible. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, Critical Resistance, the Black Panthers, the, the MOVE organization. Uh, we, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, right? Like, like this is the continuation of a, of a multi-generational, multi-century liberation struggle. And we are reaching a, a new climax of our power. So I'm grateful. Uh, Asha, how, how you feeling as we check? Yeah, thank you for that, Damon. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just feeling thankful. You know, it's on the slides, but really this has been an experiment in mass participation. I don't think I've ever been involved in any like one specific project that had this many people, not just participating, but like leading and owning big pieces of it and trusting one another. And it has been really so beautiful. And I see so many names in this uh, Zoom list of people who've just like shown up in really beautiful ways. Um, and so, yeah, thank you. Shout out to y'all. Shout out to us. Um, and really this is like a punctuation. It's like a, you know, a comma, not a period. And that like, I'm, I'm just so excited for the years to come of, of abolitionists and defund police organizing that we're going to be doing in Chicago and our, our power is real. Um, so yeah, thank you for making that true. I meant to also shout out the Black Radical Congress and, and Mama Barbara Ramsey in, in, in that, that list. Uh, but I want to, um, one, encourage folks to, if you've not signed on to the demands yet, still do that. That's a way to get plugged into the campaign. Uh, and we also will, will take uh, donations for folks who can help support the work. Uh, uh, but also we want to, to make sure that we get as much folks information as possible. Uh, so if you're watching on the Facebook, make sure that you sign on uh, to the campaign and you can get plugged into our Slack. And as we get ready to relaunch in April, everybody get ready for the spring uh, and take care of yourselves, take care of your people. And we are still in a pandemic uh, and we know that this pandemic is affecting uh, black people, black and brown and indigenous people uh, most directly. Uh, so take care of our vulnerable people as much as we can. Uh, and that's all I have. Thank y'all so much. Defund the police, refund our people in our communities. Uh, we're building a better world. And thank you, Asha, you have really uh, been an amazing leader, an example of, of uh, how to show up in the work and integrity. This event and so much of, our, of this campaign would not have been possible for you. So I, on a personal level, just want to shout out my, my very favorite ARS for all that you've done. <laughs> yes, and thank you. Thank you, Damon, my, my sibling. Um, yeah, this is just one example of so many of the beautiful comradeships and friendships that have been nurtured during this campaign. So, yeah, thank you. Peace, y'all. Much love to the people. All's my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life I. Hard times like yeah. Bad trips like yeah. Nazareth, I'm fucked up, homie. You fucked up. But if God got us, then we gon' be alright.